Musk had an uphill climb. He has tried a lot of different tactics to try to kick up dust here. And yeah. in the end, he was headed for a pretty certain trial date and was like days away from his own deposition. And a lot of embarrassing things could come out, but also damaging things. Whatever he has to hide is worth $44 billion, reportedly. <laughs> right. It's amazing how far this has gone, yet we're right back where we yeah. were in the spring. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlatt. Well, we got a busy show today. We're going to talk about the ongoing battle between Elon Musk and Twitter. Uh, is this coming to a close or is it just getting started? We're going to talk about Kanye West and some things he said about a lot of people. White lives, Puff Daddy, Jewish people. We also have Netflix, which is shattering records with this new series about Jeffrey Dahmer, which has prompted a debate about the ethics of true crime. We're going to take a few violent stabs at articulating an ethical code for true crime. And then... Ricky, we're going to talk about your former college in NYU. There is a organic chemistry professor there who had the audacity to expect his students to learn chemistry. So we're going to dive into that controversy. But first, we have pickleball. Uh, let me quote The Guardian. There's a storm brewing on the tennis courts of America, admittedly a very middle-class, middle-aged storm, but a storm nonetheless. Ricky, what's going on here? So pickleball, apparently there's a little bit of a tension with this new sport uh, facing off with tennis and taking over tennis courts, but um, pickleball seems to be taking the world by a storm here. It's uh, some sort of cross between tennis, ping pong, and badminton, but it's like played on a court, a much smaller court than a tennis court, invented by three dads in 1965. And there's been a 39% increase in players since just 2019, um, 4.8 million people in the US. So well, it's it's like the, the hot yeah. new thing. And we're seeing it everywhere. We went on a field trip yesterday afternoon to the West Village just to see it for ourselves. Neither of us has played pickleball, right? No, yeah. And we went to go try to play, but we discovered that the courts were all taken. Right. It was it quite is that packed, and there was yeah. like a literally a line. Yeah. yeah. It was yeah. at like 530 in, uh, in the afternoon, evening, mm -hmm. and there were not only every court was taken, but people were waiting to use the courts. Yeah. And this seems to be a constant tension right now. This is a growing sport, mm -hmm. but it seems from what we can gather, tennis players, which I would count myself among them, and the pickleball players uh, seem to be in a battle for, for, I think, both public resources, but also over just the very meaning of the sport of pickleball, yeah. given the fact that it, it closely resembles tennis. Yeah, I mean, I think also the fact that most nude pickleball courts are taking over where tennis courts once were, which yeah. is really kind of the heart of the, the tension here. But, you know, I wasn't personally too disappointed that we didn't get to play because I'm super <laughs> unathletic. But, but you did um, play tennis in high school. I did play right? tennis in high school, yeah. but I haven't picked up a racket since like my junior year of high school. So Which is just like a year ago. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um but there's some there's some pretty crazy like anti pickleball takes out there. Um, the Brooklyn Brooklyn Leftist Tennis League, which I can't even believe is a thing, but that's where make we should sense. have gone. That's we should right. have gone there. We should have interviewed them. They sent out a tweet saying, "Reminder: Pickleball is an astroturf venture capital backed parasite on public space across the country. Inclusive and diverse tennis communities I don't know where those are are getting <laughs> smeared as stuffy and conservative, so that their courts can be ripped up and replaced with something more profitable. Mm. Or as a New York native." called pickleball people um they're the human version of blank street coffee yeah which is kind of like yeah blank street is this venture capital banked uh, uh backed coffee chain in new york city that was recently profiled in the new york times and i think a lot of people are you know have been aghast at the growth of uc blank street everywhere mm -hmm. 
I, lots of questions around why that's wrong, but Starbucks is okay. I don't know. Uh, I don't know where my coffee, you know, where does the coffee even come from often? And But I think people, this is the narcissism of small differences, right? Which yeah. is what this feels like to me. Yeah, you know? I can't believe this is a story that we're actually yeah. <laughs> even talking about. Like, we're well, mad about a new sport, but then there are also people on the other side and the flip side that are saying this could like save the country in very divisive times yeah. and that potentially um, like having like a, like a common pastime can make people bridge the political difference, which I actually think there's some truth in, and we've lost a lot of like no, the community places. No, not necessarily with pickleball, but yeah. like sharing pastime with people that are different from you. Yeah, I think yes is a healthy thing, but by and large, I think these like little pickleball groups that we saw on the courts were just like pals in, right. in the first place. So I don't know that we're going to be like crossing the divide. It's getting pretty heated out there. So you talked about this this leftist club, uh, mm -hmm. tennis club in Brooklyn. They also put out a manifesto and I'm going to quote from it. They talked about the insidious ideological agenda, one that reaches far beyond the craven pursuit of profit and towards the seizure of public infrastructure, the dismantling of the state and the destruction of radical collective Are these real people? I can't tell whether this is people just having fun with us or not. I actually looked through the <laughs> comments and it seems like people half were sincerely responding uh -huh. to this and the other half were having fun with this sort of I feel like tennis language. and like extreme leftism just don't go together. Right. I don't get it. I'm new to racket sports and general i grew up in a neighborhood that didn't have a lot of tennis mm. it, it, it was not the kind of thing that people play around me we played basketball football baseball yeah but every year I, I try a new sport so this is my year that i've been uh, learning tennis mm -hmm. which i love and my first reaction is i think what a lot of tennis players uh which i would i guess nominally call myself and say oh you know like i play tennis i run more it's more mm -hmm. athletic sport but as we were watching it i thought it was it looked really fun. And then if you look at the demographics, right, this is a sport that at the moment, even though the people we saw yesterday were mostly young, it's really been dominant amongst uh, older crowds, people close yeah. to retirement age, et cetera, right? Yeah, it, it started getting super popular in like retirement communities, but I would say that's where it started and the new trend and like the new growth is predominantly among younger people. It's just kind of like a more accessible version, I feel like of tennis, like there's, I think it's like an underhand um, right. serve and you don't really need to be as coached and it's not like, you know, it's not it's Cheaper. not the same kind of time yeah. investment as well. I think like it's just to me, it seems like a really innocent pastime. It right. seems nice that people are out and being active. I don't really know why we need to have like a class war yeah. <laughs> conversation about everything. Well, it it but, seems like it's turning into even more than a political battle. There's just a lot of old fashioned imbroglios happening out there on the streets. There's reports of fights between pickleball players and tennis players. Mm -hmm. uh, there was this interesting write up. The the Guardian shout out to them. They had the best write up of this whole thing, and they had they interviewed you know people on the various fault lines of this, and uh, they they interviewed this guy Brent Ingram and. Black this guy's heart. He, he says, you know, tennis players don't like that we're on their courts. He goes, which I understand because there's nowhere else for us to play. And then he goes, I think it's one of two people. It's either tennis players that are frustrated with us or houses that are nearby that don't like the noise. It, <laughs> it It's funny. These are grown people that they're interviewing. It reminds me of when I was like 12 years old and yeah. people are just fighting with their neighbors. They're fighting with each other over playground space and all that. There are people who've been arrested for drawing lines on basketball courts uh, to mm -hmm. make pickleball uh, courts and, you know, people who are vandalizing tennis courts or pickleball Someone courts and sending each other. courts in oil and then wrote like some really nasty note about how they were going to keep people's cars if they played pickleball there. I feel like there's a Will Ferrell movie, you know, like a dodgeball yeah, sequel this coming. this is truly so ridiculous in my estimation. But um, 
you know, we do have one person in, in my life who is impacted by a pickleball, oh, yes. a pickleball shift, which is my dad. So just set the stage. Um, he he is a tennis player. No, he's a golf. He's a golfer, but his country club is converting one of their tennis courts into a pickleball court. And this might be completely unusable audio, but I sent him out on the on the scene to get the down low on what's going on in the All politics. Right, let's hear, let's there. Hear from should him. we? Let's do it. Call him. This this is. 90% going to be completely unusable, but we'll see how that goes. Dick Schlott. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Mr. Schlott, welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> Happy to be here. <laughs> so so what's happening out there? So they're, from, from what Ricky was telling us, they're converting one of the tennis courts to a pickleball court. How's that going down with the members? Well, it's very popular with the members. They definitely want uh, to have pickleball. It's, you know, it's such a growing sport and it doesn't take up near as much room as even a tennis court and athletes are looking for older athletes and all athletes are always looking for a place to play. So it's a good sport. And I, I actually encountered it on television a couple of weeks ago. It was a pickleball tournament. I think I'm a positive proponent of pickleball. Are the tennis players having any sort of reaction to this? Well, the only thing that would bother the tennis players is if they lose a court. Yeah. You know, yeah. Are, are they going to, Dad? Yeah, they will lose one. Mm. Uh, and that, but that will allow for uh, up to four pickleball courts. Wow. Uh, oh, okay. Are they going to so, have fist fights over it or no? <laughs> no, no. Okay. No, I, I think enough of, enough of us <laughs> have common sense. But what it really allows, it allows people as they get older and, and actually, just to make an aside, Ricky has a brother who was playing in a over 50s league uh, and playing in Cooperstown in the Cooperstown uh, baseball park, uh, which is very exciting for them. And he's playing baseball. Wait, is he uh, playing pickleball? No, I'm talking about baseball. Oh. But I'm <laughs> crazy. I'm, what I'm talking about, I know about pickleball allows the older people to do the things that they can't do. Very few can play baseball. But they can, in, a, in a, a small environment, they can get in their competitive juices answered. Uh, and pickleball is just a, you know, it's a fun sport to even watch. Uh, Are you going to play? 100%. Okay. I'll right, bring well, you there next back. time. Yeah, report Thanks back. Thanks for your on-the-ground scoop. Uh, okay. Thank you, Mr. Schlatt. <laughs> You're welcome. Bye-bye. I'm always amazed that you have a brother who's in his 50s. I know. <laughs> I thought it was an interesting detail to slide in there. Yeah, I think my oldest is in his 60s, early 60s, half-brother. So. Old enough to be my father. He's well, older than my mom. So well, One yeah. thing that's worth mentioning uh, that your father alluded to is he said he, he saw it on TV. Mm -hmm. There's a ton of investment going into this. So there is yeah. something to the leftist critique of this, I guess, for people who hate capitalism. Capitalism tennis, has found is it. There, the, this Look, leftist group's sport of choice, like that doesn't make sense I don't know. I like capitalism. So I, I don't. this is not particularly persuasive yeah. argument to me, but there definitely is a lot of investment. LeBron James is an investor, I think, in a pickleball league now. And... I definitely have had a lot of conversations just about the infrastructure here in New York City where like it's you literally cannot build tennis courts because of the size of it. But I think you're going to start to see indoor pickleball courts just because the space constraints are easier. So people will make money off of this. But let's turn yeah. to another story, Ricky. Let's talk about Elon Musk and his battle with Twitter. We covered this a lot back uh, a few months ago when it was heating up and Elon Musk was, you know, in this will, will he, won't he mm -hmm. uh, back and forth with Twitter. The summer was relatively quiet. I mean, by Musk standards, but 
the trial was set to happen on October 17th. He was in the middle of these depositions. Documents were being released from Discovery. And Musk uh, surprised a lot of people by sending a letter, basically implying that he wants to now throw up the white flag and purchase Twitter after all. There's a lot to unpack here. What stands out to you here? Well, I think to me, the pretty obvious explanation without another one being provided by Musk is that he just expected that he didn't he had an uphill battle with this case because he had to approve that the bot problem on Twitter not only existed but that it was materially like adverse to his business dealings there <coughs> um, and so I think like a lot of the pretrial um, decisions that were made probably made him think going on deposition and like putting all of his information out there as right. part of this trial which had already happened a little bit with some text messages that got released like it's not worth it if he's going to lose anyways so yeah. um whatever he has to hide is worth 44 billion dollars reportedly <laughs> right yeah it, it's it's amazing how far this has gone yet we're right back where we yeah. were in the spring when all of this was which going i'm down. fine with yeah i I think there's a bigger question here about what the future of Twitter looks like, but just yeah. to set the stage legally right now. So this was supposed to be a five-day trial. This is Delaware Chancery Court, where they're very efficient about, you know, because corporations tend to incorporate in Delaware because they want the promise of uh, efficient, fast transactions with the court system. The judges delayed this to October 28th, and most observers, we covered this way back when, said that Musk had an uphill climb. Mm -hmm. This was clear from the fact that he lost a lot of key motions. He has tried a lot of different tactics to try to kick up dust here. And yeah. in the end, he was heading for a pretty certain trial date and was like days away from his own deposition. Uh, and a lot of em embarrassing things could come out, but also damaging things because you'd be asked information yeah. about what he knew about the bots and when and how much that was a motivator. And either and so can you clarify what a deposition exactly means and why this is like what specific things like can he plead the fifth? Why is he being put out? like in, in the open so much here. Yeah, when you're in trial, there's a, there are many rules of evidence that govern what you can and cannot ask somebody on the stand. The, the most common rule of evidence says that the question that you have to, that you ask has to be more probative than prejudicial, which is a very subjective standard and different judges will interpret it mm -hmm. differently. The, you know, there are different rules depending on where you are when it comes to depositions, but by and large, the, the depositions uh, are, have a much more relaxed standard of relevancy, mm -hmm. meaning you can ask a lot more yeah. uh, in a deposition. And some, uh, some courts don't even allow a relevancy objection in deposition and, and basically the assumption is unless you're harassing somebody or trying to dig up personal details on somebody, then any question's fair game. I went through this I was, as, when I was running a charter school network, we were sued and I had to go through deposition prep, which is very stressful, which is what Musk uh, undoubtedly was going through yeah. in the days before he sent this letter. So it's there's speculation. I know that Scott Galloway had a corporate law expert on his podcast the other day that was speculating that the deposition prep itself might have been a motivator to Musk, where he was like, shit, I don't want to have to go in front of the, you know, get go. Usually, what happens is they set up cameras. Yeah. There's a lawyer who you've never met before, and they're going to ask you questions, and that videotape is gonna get out. Mm -hmm. And either the video or videotape, I sound like I'm 100 years old, that that <laughs> video is gonna come out. And this has happened to a lot of famous people, going back to Bill Gates, which famously got his ass kicked in depositions over the Microsoft antitrust cases. So this could be really embarrassing. 
And they can ask you a whole bunch of stuff that you don't want to talk about. And, you know, Musk has been a little fast and loose with the truth, according to many of his critics. And so he could get himself into a lot of trouble uh, if he's not super practiced in mm. these types of depositions. So, uh, you know, powerful people don't hand up, uh, hold up well in, in scrutiny. Like if you think about Bloomberg when yeah. Warren destroyed him in the Democratic presidential debates, I talked to some people who were involved in that debate prep who said that he was just so unused to people pushing him around like that Bloomberg that he was resistant to the prep, which you can imagine is probably similar possibly to what Musk was going through yeah. in his preparation. Well, I mean, if he feels like he doesn't have the legal backing and, and his, his legal counsel is telling him it doesn't look great, I don't I don't really blame him for taking this kind of easy out, even though it's costing him quite a bit. But yeah. as long as he still has like the passion to take on this project and he hasn't lost it in the process of all of this, um, I'm all for him taking over. This Twitter shares surged 23% following this news. So investors are also um, kind of excited about the prospect of what this new revived Twitter could look like. So well, either they're they're excited about the revived Twitter or they're just excited that Musk is going to have to overpay for it. Yeah, which that's is true. possible here. And that's I think, true. you know, and for me, I don't fault him for settling now. I think what most people and honestly is I don't care one way or another about his personal financial hit here. But if I were in his circle, I'd be like, well, maybe we could learn from this and avoid the six month extremely expensive saga this has been. Because it's not only yeah. the legal costs, which yeah. are probably tens of millions of dollars at the very least. He, you know, he's going up against like the, the world's number one corporate law firm, uh, which means that he's hiring like the equivalent of like the most expensive lawyers you could ever imagine. But also interest rates have gone mm -hmm. up. And he spent that six month period talking trash about the very company that he's about to acquire. And the big question that's going to come now is how much can Musk even control? Because if he's saying, I want to purchase this company, he still has to then deliver on the financing. Yeah. And so a and lot he's of the been afforded an extra 11 days by right. the judge to Which do that. Which is not a lot when we're talking about tens of billions of dollars. Till the 28th. And there are two tranches to it. There's what he personally has. He sold about $7 billion worth of Tesla stock. He's, he said he doesn't intend to sell, sell anymore. Uh, and then he has what these text messages just came out in the deposition. It was like he's basically been shopping around mm -hmm. to friends like Larry Ellison and Andreessen and others trying to get the additional money. And a lot of these are not enforceable contracts. They're just kind of like DMs saying, like, yeah. all right, I got it. So the question is, like, what is uh, he going to be able to deliver on? And I think what experts are saying is what Twitter is going to is going to ask for is for Musk in exchange for settling that Musk is gonna have to give up all of his claims that there's like a bot issue and all this kind of stuff and that they, he's gonna have to enter into some kind of legally enforceable judgment of the court to say, mm -hmm. I now throw up my hands and say, I am now at the whim of this court and the court can now enforce this, you know, this claim against me. So if I don't deliver on the purchase of this, then you could take me to any court in America. That's what people seem to be saying here. Uh, so that's what we'll find out in the next 11 days. But that's not the only drama happening with Twitter. The uh, I hesitate to talk about this, but I do think if 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 listeners will bear with us here, this there's a substantive question at yeah. the end of this. Yeah. But there's a back and forth going on between Kanye West and Meta, Twitter, and I would say the media writ large. I think the background here, we don't have to go into all of it, is that Kanye West... Uh, you know, had some things to say on social media on a bunch of subjects, but I think most acutely about the subject of the Jewish people in this country, mm -hmm. where he made, I think, what are clearly anti-Semitic uh, comments yeah. and was uh, restricted 
on both platforms. I don't think he was outright banned on either from what I could tell. And this prompted him to, uh, I think, go on a kind of a free speech tour and say that he's being censored. I know that you're you're very much on the pro free speech side of things. What do you make of this? Like like this that or to rephrase, like when we're thinking about somebody like Musk taking over these platforms. Yeah. When somebody says something like Defcon 3 on Jewish people, which is what Kanye West said on Twitter, how do we treat that as the like when we think of the line we want to draw on what we would want a social media platform to enforce in terms of kicking somebody out or what they would allow? How do we think of that comment? Like, would, mm-hmm. do you think that a social media platform should allow stuff like that as offensive as it is, or does that cross the line in endangering somebody's safety? Well, I think it just comes down to the fundamental purpose of a platform. Like, there are small, more niche, community oriented platforms or things that have a very specific purpose. I think what Twitter is effectively founded to do and supposed to do is be a public forum. And obviously it goes without saying that that's something I would never say or endorse in any way, shape or form. But I I mean, I'm almost a free speech, like absolutist. And if I were in control of a platform, you know, it's I like as much as I hate to say I would allow that to be there, I would I would draw my line at incitement of violence and direct threats and harassment Mm. or doxing and things that are like criminally an issue. I I mean, I think as soon as you start parsing that out, it can go in like you, as soon as it becomes subjective, somebody in some company behind closed doors is making a decision. I think that becomes concerning. It can go um, super awry as we saw with the New York Post being censored for what turned out to be a true story for with a hunter, the Hunter Biden laptop story. But my biggest qualm here with the Kanye thing is that Twitter didn't come out and say, this is the tweet and this is the policy. And at the very least for the sake of transparency and for the sake of just like being um, like held accountable for actually holding up your policy. I think saying this tweet violated this policy publicly would have just been a lot more helpful. See, I think on this one, this crosses the line to incitement of violence. I think when you said death, I don't know what death con three exactly means in this context, but I mean, it doesn't it was, sound great. The whole great. thing was uh, super gibberish yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's obviously the, horrendous. He's, he's a very he's famous a, people person who I know yeah. a lot of us have learned not to take seriously, but there's still probably plenty of people who do take seriously. And anytime, especially you have a historically persecuted minority, to me, I would be sensitive to the incitement of violence piece. I think it's yeah. one thing to say, hey, let me, you know, we've talked about on this podcast. That one's like very much on the line because yeah. it's very unclear what that even means. Like right. It was so incoherent that, I mean, I'm not going to say I think Twitter is terrible for censoring him right. on this basis, but I think it would have been more helpful to just say, here's the tweet in question and here's why it violated our policies and just to be out in the open, which I yeah. think at the very least, if you are going to have community standards, they should be bare bones and they should be very very open and transparent when when you cross that line i think that's part of the contract of being on an a part of an online community my sense is they'll probably get there if they haven't gotten there already and and they will clarify that i think what what any of the ambiguity does is it allows him to mix issues like so he also during the same period of time appeared somewhere with a uh, white lives matter t-shirt which Mm -hmm. is actually what precipitated his first exchange which was between him and and p diddy Puff Daddy, yeah, and he that in that first exchange, which I think was one on one of the Meta platforms, Instagram, uh, Kanye 
insinuated that Puff Daddy was controlled by Jewish people. And then he he then has been doing a tour where he's been talking about the White Lives Matter part of this, which from what I can tell is not what got him banned. Like, I think people can criticize yeah. White Lives Matter as a slogan. And I think it's a very fascinating debate because it's the difference between the literal words, which every, you know, I think moral person would agree that you know, mat like lives of any race matter, but the slogan was in a particular context, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really fascinating debate. I happen to think that the slogan is not, you know, a genuine slogan. It was meant to try to instigate a certain kind of debate, but that's not what this is about. This was no. about him saying death country to Jewish people yeah, are and insinuating that, should, that and that's precisely why by, being you know, like very transparent with the standards so that people can also hold these these social media companies to account for actually abiding by their standards and not just deciding the New York Post article can't be shared. Even if you're criticizing it, you couldn't even right. share the link. I think there's like just being as out in the open as you possibly can be is really important. And another thing that Musk wanted to do was make his algorithms open source too. And I think, you know, this is as much as I don't believe in like the public utility argument, I still think these are private companies allowing it to operate as much as like uh, as something that the community kind of owns and is a part of and is has like this this platform has accountability to the people that are using it because we're more and more online i think that's a healthy thing so yeah and i think like for this the big question is going to be if musk buys twitter which it seems like is more likely than not mm -hmm. as of today what is he going to do about situations like this he's, yeah. he's previously said that he's going to be pretty hands-off about this he hasn't been that specific about what it means he yeah. said that he plans to piss off the most extreme 10 percent on the left and the most extreme 10 percent on the right he you know he's talked about being open source i think the it will be interesting to see like where he draws in line in terms of incitement yeah. of violence i think an also interesting question will be how does he view because he's so critical of bots mm -hmm. but there is an argument to be made that bots are part of free speech because if it's a human that's like, let's say I'm sitting in my office and I'm letting 15 bots loose with a message that I care about. What's the difference between that and me automating a tweet that goes out tomorrow, right? There was a, yeah. That's all speech. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how he treats some of these questions. Mm -hmm. But only time will tell. And we'll know probably in, in the next two weeks whether he owns this company or not. And I think um, it'll be interesting to see if he reverts Twitter back to what it originally was, which I would remind people that in 2012, its general manager called described the company as the free speech wing of the free speech party. Yeah. So that was its founding principle. And like, yes, there's probably going to have to be guardrails somewhere, but it the guardrails became like literally a barricade at some point. Yeah. And so returning it at least in part back to its original mission, I think is a laudable goal. Mm. Yeah, I do like the transparency piece. And I actually do think this is a, an area where blockchain could help because if if Twitter's responding in kind of a an open source permanent record way mm -hmm. and, and there's actually ways for people to interact and like where almost you can use that technology to create a conversation that's a permanent record about what what's been taken down and what isn't yeah I think that could be helpful well let's move to a, a totally different subject here as we're recording Baltimore prosecutors have dropped charges against the subject of the serial podcast Adnan Syed and that is of note because that is like the most popular true crime podcast probably ever certainly is what got me into the genre mm -hmm. for podcasts there's also this show on netflix uh, about jeffrey dahmer yeah that is shattering netflix records uh you know they have this new rating system that they recently implemented and it's the highest rated show they've ever had there and it's also there's a separate dahmer 
uh, documentary that is super high ranked too. I think it's number three right now mm -hmm. on the Netflix algorithm. Uh, and so th these dual stories uh, have prompted a conversation. There's been a lot going on with Syed over the past few weeks where there have been, you know, like he was released recently and this has been going on for years, the question about whether he's innocent or guilty. And then we have this Dahmer documentary, which I think is like as horrific a series of crimes as you could ever imagine. Yeah. You know, this is a cannibal killer. The family criticized the publishing of the um, the series on Netflix, mm -hmm. uh, saying it, you know, it's only it's only exploited their trauma. This has prompted a huge debate about the ethics of true crime yeah. and what it is that we as a society are doing in our fascination with this genre, why we are so fascinated by it. I would say that this is triply fascinating for us because we happen to have India's, at Lost Debate, we have India's number one true crime show, Desi Crime, which you can get wherever you get your podcasts. We also have a new YouTube series that people can check out that we started last week. And that show is wildly popular and we'll come back around to how we view the ethics of that show. But thinking about true crime as a genre, Ricky, before we even talk about the ethics, this is this is a super popular genre that's getting more and more popular. Why do you think it's the case? Like, wh what is it that we as Americans see in these stories? Well, I don't think it's just Americans. I think it's just- Or, yeah, maybe people, yeah, humans, I mean, I, guess, I think yeah. it's just human nature to be, um, like, I, I think it kind of triggers an instinct where we don't want to be wronged personally. And so we want to understand like the motives of other people. And I, I mean, also just mystery as a whole, or I don't like, we're just kind of morbid creatures in a way. Yeah, I we think like it's to just, rubberneck and traffic. Yeah, I think it's know. just natural. Like, yeah. I, I don't know. I'm, I don't think there's any way to make it go away. I think there's ways as creators to be more responsible and respectful. But like, this goes back to 16th century Britain when there were literary movements and, you know, Jack the Ripper's still a famous person and like we want we want to get to the bottom of things we want to know what terrible things human beings are capable of and sometimes that pays off because we're maybe all the wiser or more cautious so i, I yep. mean i think i think there's pros and cons but then you have like the question of can you make a documentary that's purely informational what is dramatizing it do can does this mean that news organizations shouldn't be covering these things what's the difference where's the line between art and journalism like there's a lot of great area here and i think yeah like i it's i don't think it's like a net negative for society you know, it, re any. it reminds me of in a different context my mother would read these national Enquirer magazines and the whole time she'd be reading them she'd be like i can't believe they published this <laughs> which is the equivalent of what's happening here because yeah. not only do we produce true crime i watched this Dahmer do documentary and i have since reflected on it and and, and i'm not sure this is healthy for me or yeah. for our society, but this I thought has been that one was. I tried to start it last night. It was too icky for me. Or it's even too the, gory. sorry, the, I haven't seen the documentary. It's or actually the, the show I'm show. referencing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but as you said, this has been going on for a while. You talk about 16th century Britain. There was Helter Skelter, 74, the Manson murders, in 79, the Ted Bundy trial, OJ. When I was a kid, when I was in middle school. Uh, or elementary school, but this really, this period of true crime, which I would say is sort of the renaissance of true crime, yeah. really began with Serial, which yeah. was a, a podcast about uh, Anand Syed, is a, who was a teenager who was accused of murdering his girlfriend. I'm sure most of our listeners have have heard that podcast before, but essentially it was it was the perfect kind of story for true crime because I think that the like the staircase, the best true crime stories in terms of audience building, are the ones where you're like, hmm. 
it's kind of 50 50. Yeah. that's how i see that totally and everybody has opinions about whether somebody did it or not and those are the kinds of things that build huge audiences i also feel like there's the done and dusted stuff too that like it's it's just so grotesque or so sinister that people are also interested in that too. well that's Dahmer, I mean, right yeah well, that's the ethics of this right yeah. so for background on Dahmer, for those who need to be reminded of this he was a cannibal murderer who did horrific things and he was convicted of it and he's no longer alive and so i think this is a you can this is an interesting test case of like what it is we're trying to accomplish mm -hmm. with our entertainment when it comes to true crimes and so i i think this gets to the question of what is the ethics of all this and i let me posit a theory of ethics on this and it and this is for both the audience like people like me who watch Dahmer, and I, and I, in some ways i'm ashamed of it um and then people who are creating it which is Perhaps what we should be doing when we're creating true crime is we should be doing one of three things. And if we're not doing one of three things, we should question why we're watching it or mm -hmm. creating it. One is if we're trying to solve the actual murder, right? So in the case of Adnan Syed, yeah. uh, there are people who are, you know- Or other crimes as yeah. well, not necessarily just murder. Right, yeah. like we, and we definitely do this with Daisy Crime. Like we have a, a YouTube video up and also a podcast episode about um, the Kohistan murders in, in Pakistan where we still haven't seen justice there. So it's really important for us to shine a light on those murders, to catch yeah. the people who did it, hold them accountable to it. And just as an aside to that, America's Most Wanted led to 1,200 arrests and 60 missing children found. So there's actually like statistical backing to the the potential that that could happen in, right. some in some instances, yeah. So that's number one. I think we can all agree that's a good use of true crime, especially when we have you know the limited local resources, mm -hmm. right? It's not like the Kohistan Daily News, there's no such thing, but is gonna be like pushing this. Part of our issue there was that mm -hmm. there was a local culture that was covering that up. Two is that is a situation where there are certain category of crimes that aren't getting enough attention. Yeah. And so when we think about Isha and Aryan who do the Daisy Crime podcast, as an example, that's a case where we want to bring attention, for example, to honor killings mm -hmm. or gender-based violence or political violence in India and South Asia. So, the, and, and the other examples are like the Curtis Flowers incident, like with that podcast, which was about a guy who'd been wrongfully convicted, I think by almost everybody's estimation. Uh, and at the time he was you know, still sitting in jail. It was both about racial justice throughout the South, but also this particular murder that happened that he was accused of. And that actually was a great example of bringing attention to the injustice in the South, but also leading to potentially the Supreme Court in that state overturning his conviction, yeah. which was great. Uh, third category, I would say, is if the family wants it, right? And I use this as an example of like, if, we ever, if we're ever questioning ethics, often, I, I often think about the local context, right? Like, mm -hmm. let's say we were just like Pleasantville, USA, and there was this horrific murder that happened 20 years ago, and like the local theater was going to put on like the production of like the, you know, the murder of Sally Smith, right? Yeah. The town wouldn't do that if the family didn't want it. Like, that's just like a common courtesy you give to your neighbors. We're not going to be like, let's be entertained and gawk at this terrible tragedy we all went through because you know your neighbors and you don't want to disrespect them or play on their trauma. I, I, mm. I think we should think about that writ large as a national community to be like, look, nobody's going to stop you. The government shouldn't stop you. But we should have a sense of decency to be like, look, if these people have been through a lot of trauma and they don't want it, perhaps we should just let it go yeah, and not make I money mean off of it or seek entertainment from. I think there's like really different 
uh, iterations of that and different examples too though like there are instances where people that are very involved in these crimes do want that attention or do feel that that's part of their process and healing and an example of actually a really small isolated community is where my family's from in Europe off the coast of France this tiny little island less than a hundred thousand people living there and they had this this serial rapist who was climbing into people's windows if you want to see something really spooky google the beast of jersey his mask mm. is like so chilling he was terrorizing this little island from 1957 to 1971 and then it turns out he's like the jolly santa claus type that um or like he dressed up as santa claus and for for christmas and kids were sitting on his lap and he was secretly the person that was terrorizing this entire tiny island community and it's become a true crime story that's very popular but even his own wife who didn't had no idea and then he got arrested she wrote a book about that entire experience and actually felt that that was part of her healing process so i think it's it's very different right. for different people but um being respectful by and large i think obviously is hugely important and in like the Dahmer series for example there are living people whose family members deaths are being depicted right. and they weren't ever talked to or asked about and also they're not the ones profiting versus versus at least this woman probably made a right. little book advance in the yeah. process but but Netflix and Netflix or whoever produced this um this series is profiting as a result so i think there's there's totally like a scale and a gradation here. But one thing that I do think is pre stands pretty much in favor of true crime, in my opinion, is just the level of awareness that it's brought to the vulnerability that people have. Like, I think there's there were a ton of dating app true crime things and people yeah. are a little more on high alert. It's like a Tinder even, swindler, stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, or even like more violent iterations of that. But, you know, like you you watch like the Ted Bundy stuff and and I would say most modern women would think, oh, I, my spidey senses would have tingled if some guy asked me to come to his car. And right. like, like it, even though it has sown some suspicion and I have some very, very paranoid friends yes. who listen to it, I, like in the dark on their walk home in New York. And I'm like, don't do that. Yeah. At least listen to it when you get home. But I think there's a, there's a level of, of self-protection. And like there's this great book called The Gift of Fear about how women in particular have this instinct that like, like when your hair stands up in the back of your neck, don't be polite, like cross the street, like just protect yourself. And I think that at least being aware of the vulnerability that you have can be a net positive. And it's why we look back on things and say, oh, like a lot of the Bundy victims like thought they were doing a good thing to help someone out. Right. But like, we probably wouldn't be that naive today. And unfortunately, we're more suspicious, but there is a reality right. and a risk. So. Yeah, well, I, I'm 50-50 I'm on this in the sense of, We've also covered through the coddling of the American mind whenever we bring up that book and there's just this mm -hmm. sense of panic sometimes that's leading to overparenting of kids that I think sometimes these stories lead to a sense that these are common. Like like Jeffrey well, Dahmer was one that, person who did the, the, what he did. What's the difference between true crime doing that and like a news report or like a headline that that is that's reporting the one in a million crime that spooks people too. Like where well, do we draw the line? We've been critical of those. Like I think we've been critical of the way the media covers those stories too. And it's not that they shouldn't cover it, yeah. but I think it's really important for the media. And I know this is like snooze fest, you know, this is like last debate, like nuance fest, but like it is really important for the media when they're talking about abductions, right? If you're running a child abduction story mm -hmm. in New Jersey, that's about an Oregon family. I'm like, why, like you need to put that in context to be like, all right, let's like, here's how safe your community is. Here's how, how much safer it's gotten. Like there's mm -hmm. a bias against positive stories where by and large with the past 40, 50 years, 
you know, with the exception of the past few years, but if you yeah. look at the macro trends, places are just generally safer, right? And if you look at the Ted Bundy situation, it's absurd what he, he would never happen today. The guy was literally like, you know, escaping from the Aspen courthouse while he yeah. was like there for like five murders or something crazy. Yeah. Uh, but you did mention something that I want to ask about, which is true crime is undoubtedly more popular with women than it does is with men. This has yeah. prompted a bunch of interesting takes. Comedian Jenna Friedman, you know, had a, a funny joke about how I feel bad for the amount of true crime that I consume. But to be fair, women, we don't watch true crime. Technically, we study it to make sure <laughs> to make sure we don't end up on it. Um, you know, this, that was a joke, but there are actually experts like psychologist Shivana Childs from the Cleveland Clinic who gave an interview that I watched where basically she said the same thing. We deep dive into it so that we can get the whole picture. We want to know how this person ticks. We want to know what was behind the story. It's a look into their deeper lives. Women are particularly interested in true crime because it becomes a template of what not to do, of how to save themselves should they find themselves in similar situations. We want to know that we can survive. There was a 2010 study from Wales which seemed to confirm that. There was an SNL skit about women, you know, listening, watching true crime and, you know, basically doing their taxes or going on dating apps while they're doing it, like multitasking through like these yeah. horrific stories. What is it, is it, other than just avoiding it, which we've stipulated mm -hmm. to, like people want to be informed, like what is it about true crime that, you know, that appeals more to women than men? I think the jury is still entirely out on that, but I would say anecdotally at least, all my friends are like constantly constantly listening to true crime podcasts. I'm less into the murder stuff and more into like the mystery, like kind of like crimes and like more kind of theoretical stuff. I'm right. not I'm not into the the bloody gory stuff, but I've by and large my friends, that's what they listen to. And it's usually female targets. And I mean, the only thing that I can really come up with is just like I agree with that comedian that we're 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 we feel like we're vulnerable and so we kind of want to understand the the enemies the like what are the signs what is what kind of person acts like this right. like you know psychopaths are very charming and that's something that it probably is good to be aware of if you're on dating apps and like right. yeah I mean I think women today are in a lot more vulnerable situations, especially with online dating, especially with the way that people meet each other outside of their community groups or friend groups and they don't have mutual friends. And I think, you know, we're 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 gathering data subconsciously. But then you also have the extreme of like writing love letters to serial killers, mm -hmm. which I have absolutely no explanation for. I don't know what that is. But that's definitely a thing that happens. Yeah, I mean, there was there were a lot of critiques even of some of the hosts of these shows, like Sarah Koenig uh, from Serial, that she was crossing lines. And I think, I don't know what the answer here is because mm -hmm. I do want people to be aware, but I don't want people to be so paranoid that it's just another reason for people to stop trusting each other in our yeah. society. So there really isn't a good answer. Uh, but there I think like the, the whether you're dramatizing it I think that's one question. Yeah. And I think especially with that, there's this kind of like statute of limitations thing right. where like you have to wait until there's not living people who are who could theoretically watch a depiction of their their yeah. family member being killed. I think that's different. But I think reporting on it and reporting facts should always be out in the open and allowed to happen. I don't I don't have mm -hmm. any issue with that as long as you're you're providing a service and being informational. Yeah, shout out to some podcasts out there that are doing some good work. One I particularly like is To Live and Die in LA, which I think is a perfect example of ethical true crime. So Neil Strauss 
you know, followed this, you know, murder of this this young woman who went to LA to work in the porn industry. Mm-hmm. And I think he pretty much got to the bottom of it there. And it's a really interesting ride. And I think some of the best true crime uses a murder to not only solve the crime or bring awareness to something, uh, which in his case he did he did awareness of the murder, but he also depicted the porn industry and some of the issues that happened there. And yeah. kind of, I think he he advanced two journalistic causes at once, which I think is really fascinating. And this kind of stuff is even showing up in, in pop culture now. The most recent uh, season of Dexter has a true crime podcast, or I won't spoil what happens uh, with regards to this, this woman, but there's like a true crime podcast who's trying to solve the crime alongside the police. Mm-hmm. So you're starting to see that this is like, this is this is entered the mainstream. I think that Money Talks though and the Dahmer series is number one in sixty countries right now, and unfortunately, I think there's more of a market for sometimes less tasteful iterations of this. But well, we've got one final story, Ricky. I was a uh, I studied chemistry in college. I took organic chemistry. I crushed it. Um, so good mm-hmm. job, me. Mm-hmm. Um, the (laughs) (laughs) i wanted more recognition for that that's uh but i've never really thought about it since until this story because i haven't used it in my life it organic chemistry has been viewed as this weed out class it's it's i think characterized as really difficult which i think in many ways is an exaggeration there is a professor at your former university yeah at nyu who was recently fired let go Mm -hmm. contract wasn't renewed however we want to say because uh, in the estimation of his students, or a lot of his students, he was too hard on them. Uh, what's the basics here? Uh, well, his contract was terminated on this basis. But um, Maitland Jones, he's 84 years old. He's kind of a star of the organic chemistry field. He has published over 200 papers. He literally wrote the textbook for this class. And he was at Princeton for decades as a professor, tenured. And then in his semi-retirement, picked up a contracted role to um, like year-on-year contract at NYU as a professor in organic chemistry, just I think on a more part-time basis is my understanding. And he says that around 10 years ago, students started performing worse in um, in his class, but kind of slightly and then more and more increasingly. So it's around the Gen Z kind of turning mm-hmm. point here. And then in the pandemic, he says it, quote, fell off the cliff and he was getting kids with single digit test scores, zeros, 30 percent. And he then lowered the bar a little bit. He actually paid out of pocket five thousand dollars of his own money to record all of his lectures make sure that they were online kids could watch them back um, which the school by the way is still using Mm -hmm. according to the new york times which is (laughs) insane to me like oh we're not gonna pay you we're gonna fire you but we're still gonna use your your self-funded uh video lectures um it's absurd with the money that y'all paid for tuition that he was self-funding his videos. I, it, it should just be automatic. Absolutely is absurd. Um, but then there was one petition against him in early 2020 during the pandemic saying he was still too hard despite um, all the challenges. And I would say I was a student in 2020 during the pandemic at NYU and my professors largely were easier, but than they were in the earlier portions of that mm-hmm. spring semester. Like they let up a little bit, but I think they like, I was still doing roughly the same amount of work, but it was definitely, the, it, was, it was a challenge and my professors were flexible. 
Um, it's hard to say whether or not he really was. But then there was a second petition against him that ha- happened in May. And 82 of his 350 students in his class um, said he was condescending and demanding that they had mental health and emotional concerns. And they said, quote, we urge you to realize that this is a class with such a high percentage of withdrawals and low grades that has failed to make students learning and well-being a priority and reflects poorly on the chemistry department as well as the department as a whole. And so NYU received this petition in one email from um, from their director of undergraduate studies. He alluded to the fact that he wanted to keep parents happy. Um, presumably, he says, the people who pay the tuition bills mm. and they terminated his contract as a result. Well, I, I think you know, I think people a little bit of context here is clear, which is if you if you're going to become a doctor, you have to take a series of courses yes. in organic and chemistry, this is like uh, sophomore year, roughly. Yeah, around organic year, chemistry. Typically, your first year is inorganic yeah. chemistry and uh, general biology. The second year is organic chemistry, which is the study of carbon-containing compounds, which is like what a lot of the processes in the human body involve. Carbon is the second most mm-hmm. prevalent uh, element in the human body. Straight, and then you have physics, Look calculus. At that. You remember your, you crushed it. You remember it still. You know, I'm just looking for a gold star from my audience <laughs> today, and I, I want more enthusiasm from you about my academic record here. Good but job. I guess my point there. Thank you. Um, I think the point here, though, is that first of all, I was a horrendous high school student. Mm-hmm. I get to undergrad, and I'm told over and over again, dreaded organic chemistry, dreaded organic chemistry. I get to organic chemistry. And it was the easiest of the prerequisites. It's basically memorization and pattern recognition. And I'm not the only yeah. person who said this. This is, it's it's almost like they're trying to like scare people. Like it's almost like you know, um, basic training in the military or something. We're like, oh my god, this is going to be so hard. But to me, let's pretend it's the hardest subject ever. You know what's hard? Like somebody flatlining in front of you, or performing brain surgery, or mm-hmm. doing a residency. Like th- things are supposed to be hard when it's people's lives on the line. Yeah. And so there's a big part of me that's like all right, this should be hard and I want to see data. And Absolutely, it should be hard. And the article quotes like saying, oh, the average percentage passage, you know, the grade in the subject is 30%. On and so midterm. people are getting single digits. On midterm. That was true back when I was there too. Like, Yeah. He that, said, well, so according to the professor himself, things were kind of on a gradual decline for 10 years. Then they like went just, through the floor. And he said it got so bad they weren't it, even reading the questions. They on weren't the showing exams. up to classes. Like I don't if you're not showing up to class, I or watching his don't videos, care. he was yeah. yeah. Which which is interesting to me because so th- th- there's I'm sympathetic to him and people supporting him. And I think there's this general trend where we're coddling children in school yeah. and we're expecting everything to be easy. Where so I'm generally with him on this. I also think that there's there's so many online resources now that didn't exist uh, years ago, like yeah. Khan Academy and things like that. Or the, literally watching the lectures back. Yeah, you, like, you get Sal Khan to teach you all of organic chemistry. And by the way, you can go yeah. all the way up to like bioorganic chemistry, molecular genetics, and, and things they teach in medical school for free online. Yeah. So let's pretend he's the worst professor in the world. You can figure this out. And he's claiming they're not even watching his lectures or showing up to his class. No, and there's, and also, but the point being that even after the pandemic drop, which I think in the spring of 2020, it was fair to be a little easier with right. kids. Like we didn't know what was going on. But he says that it's been sustained, the level of grades since then. And I certainly saw that. I went um, last summer, I did one summer course with NYU when I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And like the level of interaction that students had, like all their cameras were off. We were still right. on Zoom. 
everyone was just bullshitting it because, and like, it's just like a level of apathy that I think is happening with Gen Z. And if you're going to be apathetic in a class that's meant to decide whether or not you have what it takes to take other people's lives into your own hands as a doctor, I have no issue with the failure rate increasing if the student success rate is decreasing. That should be the case. Well, the larger context is that uh, grade inflation is on the rise, something we've talked about before. And it's also where something we've also covered before is that a lot of there's a growing movement among progressives to get rid of standardized tests. So the world that would come out the end of this is essentially making it easy to get an A, especially in, in professions that are very like important. Yeah. Like just become a doctor. Lives, right. Yeah. We want to get that rid of deal. the standardized tests too. Yeah. So then what is the gatekeeping mechanism to ensure that that person who's operating on somebody knows what they're doing? That's what I'm concerned about. Now, but their mental health is. Yeah, taking into that's, account as but long they, as they're mental. Good. Yeah, that's as long what's as they're important. emotionally Look, sound. People's mental health is important, and we're talking no, about the medical course, profession. Yeah, but, but this is not the way to solve it. This is not. This is not in any way precise. Like, there's an example that. of a student hyperventilating after a midterm, and that feels like a student not to be like dunking on them because I was a very anxious student myself. That feels like a student who probably shouldn't be in a high stakes life or death situation in an operating room. That right. seems like the kind of formative experience that says. This might not be the path for you. Well, let me play the devil's advocate here because I think you and I are generally in agreement on this. Okay. So there are a couple things that showed up in this article that I do take issue with. One is there's this, and this is this is true, I think, of you know shows that have covered this and other articles that have commented on this and tweets. There's this sense that because he's written a bunch of textbooks on the subject, therefore he's like the generalization is that he's like a great professor. Mm-hmm. We've all had professors who hand us their textbook and it might be the most amazing textbook and they don't give a shit about teaching. So yeah. like, I think like to me, that isn't enough evidence to tell me that this guy is a great teacher. Uh, second, no, it's definitely evidence that he's like a, a star in, in his field. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Second is that he may have like the fact that he, let's pretend that he has been a great professor. We've also had the experience of the guy who's been around too long. Like I had this guy in law school who was like, everybody was like, this guy's amazing. He sucked. Like he was like, yeah. and honestly full of himself. He never taught the actual subject and I stopped going to his class. So there's no sense that like, because this guy's acclaimed and he had been quote unquote mm-hmm. a great teacher, that he's still a great teacher. I think these people should be accountable. I like sites like ratemyprofessor.com that at least allow students to express whatever it is they believe about professors. Yeah. Sometimes that shaming itself can do a lot of good. And then there's the sense that there's data that I would want to know to really be fully yeah. informed on this. Like for example, when I was in college, there was a calculus class that I did not take, but most of my friends who were pre-med did. And this guy basically failed everybody, yeah, including people I know worked really hard and really smart. And there's a certain reasonableness standard where if you have 400 kids in a lecture and you're failing all of them, mm-hmm. that there needs to be an investigation. In that case, they investigated it and they wound up telling people they can either convert it to pass fail or drop it later on, but the damage was done. I know so many, it was actually good for me because it weeded out all the pre-med people around me, but it was yeah. bad because I had no friends left at the end of the semester in my classes. Mm-hmm. Like it really did damage. So I think- there, there's a reasonableness standard, like yeah. somewhere between no, like Navy Steel Seal style weeding out and yeah. like everybody gets a participation trophy. There's a there is a an exacting standard, and that's why I think yeah. percentiles matter. I know? would also say that it matters to me quite a bit that he hasn't had an issue until the pandemic, yeah, um, and that these the first petition popped up during it, and that only 82 of the 350 students signed it. Right. So it wasn't everyone, yeah. and I would 
wager it could a guess be 82 that, that failed exactly you know, i would wager a guess that yeah. that's the case and if you look at his rate my professors he has a ton of five star ratings and a ton of one star ratings mm. and i would guess that that probably is correlated with how well you performed in the class yeah 82 sounds like they're like a right amount of number of people who fail and that might not even be just people who fail it could be d's and c's because d's and c's yeah. are like probably like you know a, a two-star rating on uber it's like a death sentence to a doctor you know a future yeah. doctor you know so i i, I have by no the idea. way nyu already before they even fired him they tried to appease students by saying oh you can retroactively withdraw so it doesn't even show up in your transcript but nope still we're gonna fire him well i want to quote this new york times writer uh, because this is i think it, it belies a certain upper west side kind of bias uh about the purpose of education so this is stephanie saul in short, this one unhappy chemistry class could be a case study of the pressures in higher education as it tries to handle its Gen Z student body. Should universities ease pressures on students, many of whom are still coping with the pandemic's effect on their mental health and schooling? How should universities respond to the increasing number of complaints by students against their professors? Do students have too much power over contract faculty members who do not have the protections of tenure? And she says the whole controversy seems to illustrate a sea change in teaching from an era where professors set the bar and expect the class to meet it to the more supportive student-centered approach. Now there's yeah. certain characterizations there that I, that I agree with, like some of the questions she's raising are important, but when she ends by saying, oh, this is a question of setting the bar, expecting, expecting students to meet it to a supportive student-centered approach. I'm like, your euphemisms there are doing a lot of work mm -hmm. here. Like what does student-centered really mean? Especially when you got one professor with sometimes hundreds of students in a class. Like they literally can't sit down with every single person yeah. and walk, you know, be their therapist, their professor, their best friend, you know, Sal Khan, the, the author of the textbook. Like I, at a certain point you need to say, all right, this is a lecture. Yeah. It's not much more than that. Yeah, I mean, I would say even in my recent experience at NYU, there's very much a sense that you are somehow entitled to at least a decent grade, even if you don't show up. Like that's yeah. just that's just like a given. And I, I don't really understand where that came from and it's not something that I share. But I would also say by and large, like these younger professors that I've had, are very aware of that fact mm -hmm. and they gain popularity points on the basis of not being like this guy essentially right. and of being the A professor. And when you read Rate My Professors, it's usually about how difficult the grade is to 100%. attain. I pulled not, up my mom. My mom is a history yeah. professor and nurse at, at CSI. And it's funny, you read it. My mom got very good reviews there. And there, every comment is about whether she's easy or not. And some yeah. students think she's too easy. Some people think she's not. Some people think she's yeah. fair, et cetera. It's, it's mm -hmm. really amazing. But let's not let NYU off the hook here. They're charging, what's the tuition at NYU nowadays? 70. I mean, it depends on if you have um, room and board. So, so let's I don't pretend know what the rough is. Let's say like 60 without room and board. Yeah, let's say $60,000. And it, during a lot of the pandemic, they're charging $60,000 and not having in-person instruction. Above the rate of inflation during the pandemic when it was on Zoom. And a lot of these yeah. universities are increasing tuition without uh, increasing the uh, professor salaries in tandem. Billion dollar uh, endowment. So they do have mental health services. It's there, but your mental health service is not your organic chemistry class. Got like it. yeah, switch no, I agree to humanities that. Well, that we have plenty of options at NYU. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it mirrors the debate over K-12, right? Where we want our teachers to be everything. We want them to be solving poverty, mental health. Yeah. You know, they want them to be nurses and then we want them to be A-plus instructors. It's just putting so much on their shoulders. Well, uh, thankfully, none of us are in organic chemistry class anymore. What kind of class? You're in college, sort of, right? You're on no, leave right now. No, but I'm just floating. I have- Columbia? I'm technically- 
I guess a Columbia student, but I'm floating at the moment. Well, okay, I was when in you the humanities. I, I'm a history, a history major. So when you go back, we'll have you on assignment taking organic chemistry and you'll report. Oh back no, for thank us. you. Yeah, I'm all good. <laughs> all right, well that's all we have today. Make sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts. It's really important because what we're here to do is bring nuance to a lot of these discussions. And you know, there's a lot of people out there who think that nuance doesn't sell. Uh, we think it's different, uh, and that's why we're you know, we exist. We're a nonprofit media company looking just to provide you with you know some semblance of balance in our coverage. And so it's really the one thing you can do is go out there and give us a five-star review. Talk about why it is that you love this podcast. Tell your friends about it. And if you're on YouTube, hit that like button, share it. Uh, we also talked about the Daisy Crime Podcast. You know, go search that out. And we'll be back here. What's today? I always get the day of the week wrong. Today's Tuesday. Okay, we'll be back hope. here Thursday. <laughs> same See you place, Thursday. same time. The Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Editing and sound design by Monica Espitia and Joe Engelbrecht. Video editing by Ava Maldonado.